Friends, colleagues, and emotional regulators, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are delighted to introduce to you Dr. Ted Boshane from The Ohio State University and uh, in charge of the Lifespan Adjustment Project. Ted, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're really excited to have you here, um, and we're looking forward to learning about some of your work. So why don't you give us a little bit of a brief overview? What exactly, or what do you think we're going to end up talking about, or what has your work been to this point? Well, I hope we consider uh, development of uh, impulsivity, which is sort of expressed as symptoms of ADHD, uh, very young in life, life and, and how um, that places people at risk for uh, different outcomes later in life especially in high-risk context. So it's it's a complex story, but I think if we take things step by step, um, uh, things will be clear enough. And, and um, a lot of the work on ADHD uh, conducted to date, in fact, over the past 50 years, has been almost exclusively with boys. And I hope we have a chance today to talk about what happens with girls who have ADHD, um, because that's much newer. And that's uh, what, what a lot of our work has been looking at in the last few years. Uh, to start off, Ted, do you want to just like talk about how ADHD is diagnosed in children then? Would that be a yeah, good place so, to start? Yeah. So the, the, the way ADHD is diagnosed, and it can be done reliably uh, in children as young as age four or so, um, is to evaluate really three domains or, or two domains of behavior and how they combine for a third. And, and that uh, is hyperactivity and impulsivity. And so just as those terms sound, um, a child who's hyperactive and impulsive um, has a hard time sitting still, um, makes decisions without understanding or without considering the consequences, um, you know, fails to um, uh, consider other people's needs uh, in, in their behaviors. And of course, all kids do that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but when those behaviors are severe, um, you've got hyperactivity and impulsivity. So uh, one of the uh, primary or cardinal features is very young in life, acts as if driven by a motor. So always on the go, moving from A to B to C, never completing anything. Um, and, and so that's a core symptom of uh, the hyperactive impulsive subtype. Then there's an inattentive subtype. And those children um, look a bit different. So um, they, uh, let's advance maybe to school age. And so, uh, to, because that's when it's uh, more likely to be diagnosed. So inattentive children tend to daydream. Um, they're drowsy, they're lethargic uh, in class. They, they're the kid who falls asleep uh, on, on his or her desk um, while the teacher is presenting. And so that's a very different um, quality. Uh, and even though they're lumped together in this ADHD diagnosis in our diagnostic manual, um, there's a lot of good neuroscientific evidence to suggest that these are different things. And we, in our uh, lab, study the hyperactive impulsive uh, children, um, not the primarily inattentive children. It's interesting because like, like you just said, I mean, these two things are lumped together. And yet when we think about ADHD and by we, I mean the general public, I imagine that the first thing that comes to mind is that impulsive hyperactive kind of behavior that you would describe first rather than this inattentive behavior. And so it's interesting that there's actually this, uh, distinction that there are these sort of two different, um, categorizations in a way. Right. And, and um, I, I would just quickly elaborate by saying that children who are hyperactive and impulsive um, don't attend well to things, but that's secondary to their hyperactivity and impulsivity. Of course, they're not paying attention. They're too busy um, 
engaging in, in, in all sorts of um, uh, hyperactive and reward-seeking behavior, if you will. Whereas the inattentive kids, that's their primary problem. So that's how to think about it. So let's let's go with uh, where we're leading to, because I mean, the work that you're talking about doesn't just end at you know diagnosing. So where where do we go next? So uh, something that we've known for 60 years since a famous sociologist named Lee Robbins at Washington University in St. Louis wrote a book called Deviant Children Grown Up. Uh, since that time, we've known that boys in particular with extreme hyperactivity and impulsivity early in life are at really high risk for progressing um, to more problematic behaviors uh, as they develop. So, and this is particularly, tr particularly true in context of risk. So if a boy uh, is extremely hyperactive and impulsive, and he's raised um, in a family where there's a lot of um, physical punishment, um, what we call coercion, um, maybe even aggression, maltreatment, he's, he's much more likely to develop um, oppositional behavior. Um, and then uh, if that boy affiliates with deviant peers, so other boys who you know, are having similar problems, um, he's much more likely to engage um, in delinquent behaviors, um, that might be stealing, um, it might be skipping school, um, so truancy. Um, and then he's much more likely to start using uh, alcohol and other substances of abuse early on um, and to become uh, engaged in the criminal justice system, especially in high-risk neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence and criminality. And once someone is embedded in the criminal justice system, then that's a self-reinforcing cycle that starts to emerge. So 60% of, of boys who are um, sort of taken into the criminal justice system will, um, will show recidivism. Mm -hmm. So once they're let out, they'll, they'll get back in there again. So the last thing you want is um, an impulsive boy uh, making his way into the criminal justice system. And then if you follow them further, um, you'll find that um, adult males who are diagnosed with what's called antisocial personality disorder, um, which most of us probably have some inkling of what that is, um, almost all of them follow that sort of developmental pathway that I just described. That doesn't mean for a second that a boy with ADHD is destined to go on that trajectory. Right. Um, it's not transitive. Um, so in, in, without context of risk in protective environments where um, there's competent parenting and a good school system uh, and, um, you know, engagement in after school activities with competent peers, none of those things have to happen. Um, ADHD is a lifelong condition, but it doesn't have to progress along that sort of deviant pathway that I just described. Mm -hmm. um, so um, does, uh, hopefully that answers uh, your question. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does. Yeah. And, and so I think, uh, I mean, the one question I would, I, just for me not knowing enough about ADHD, I guess, is uh, there's different like uh, levels uh, on, on which you can have ADHD, I imagine. So like there's sure. more, more like, I don't know, progressive or like, like higher ADHD symptomology than others that are meeting that criteria, I assume. Sure. So um, impulsivity, and this is um, something I um, would will talk about if I visit, um, impulsivity is a normally distributed personality trait. So if you think of the normal curve, where we decide ADHD happens is arbitrary. And in the United States, we diagnose uh, ADHD at seven, eight percent of the population. Um, we just finished a population study of, in Sweden, and they diagnose ADHD at 1.5% of the population. So these are arbitrary decisions. 
And there's no clear cut boundary between um, um, ordinary impulsivity, whether, whatever that means, and um, ADHD. Right. And, and that's most disorders for, for that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We're comparing them against their peers, right? Is that That's kind Correct. of what's going on, right? So it's like you are more impulsive than the usual. And then in this case, like you said, uh, in America, they're, they're saying 7 to 8%. So you're of the most hyperactive 7 to 8% of the population. And that's why we would diagnose you with ADHD. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Does the degree to which uh, somebody expresses ADHD and is diagnosed, so if somebody is in, say, Sweden, and they're at that sort of 1.5%, um, do those people have different trajectories than those in, say, the US who are diagnosed at, you know, at that 7% mark? One would imagine, although I don't think we have done the comparative research to show that. So um, what it means in, in Sweden is that they diagnose more severe cases. What it means in the U.S. is that we almost certainly overdiagnose ADHD because that seven eight percent number, which is actually so higher in some localities, uh, means that we're capturing children who uh, fall in the high normal range uh, on impulsivity. We also have the sort of corollary problem of, of uh, prescriptions for uh, methylphenidate um, and other medications for ADHD that are uh, ten times higher than many other. Um, Western countries. So, wow. yeah, that was going to be my next question is, you know, does getting diagnosed, what does that do to affect the trajectory, if anything, or, or maybe that isn't studied yet as well? Well, that, yes, I think we do have some data on that. That's a complex um, question. Um, and so let me try to break it up a little bit. So <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> um, what there, there's, there are a few important points to make. I mean, one is that, um, considering the U.S. only for a moment, um, when you take your child in and get a diagnosis of ADHD and he, and I'm going to say he at the moment because we're talking about the hyperactive impulsive subtype and boys outnumber girls about seven to one. And so um, when you get that diagnosis and you take your, your child uh, into the pediatrician, which is oftentimes who, who renders the diagnosis now instead of a psychiatrist, you get a prescription for a stimulant or, or other um, ADHD medication. And that typically um, is effective for reducing hyperactive and impulsive behaviors. Um, it doesn't extend to other behaviors that may have developed. So those um, aggressive, aggressive rule-breaking behaviors, if those have already de developed, uh, medication is not likely to reduce mm -hmm. them because they take on a self-reinforcing quality. Um, the other thing is that only about 50% of children who are prescribed a stimulant, um, that only about 50% of their parents ever refill the prescription. So a lot of kids get prescriptions that they don't use. Um, also, if, from a psychological standpoint, and as psychologists, we shouldn't forget the psychological um, <laughs> Uh, what does it do when you take your child in and get this diagnosis and, uh, and he gets a prescription? Um, what it does is creates an external attribution for his behavior. So, oh, now I know why my child behaves this way. He's got this disorder. Right. And what tends to happen is parents pull back on their parenting um, when they should do the exact opposite. That what we know from large trials like the multimodal treatment of ADHD study, where uh, which was a three-site trial, I, I believe it was, Berkeley, uh, Ohio State, and um, uh, in Cincinnati, um, we know that behavioral management of ADHD um, is extremely important 
for um, in combination with um, with medication management. But if a parent isn't told that, and if they don't know how to parent uh, consistently and appropriately, um, it's not helpful oftentimes only to get um, a prescription. And in fact, they pull back on their parenting at the very time uh, when um, more consistent parenting is needed. So. Right. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It's most critical at that particular moment to be engaged yeah. and to be parenting appropriately and 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 whatever else and, and to be able to say, oh, well, I can't do anything to affect or change this behavior because it is my child's neurological development or disorder. It's a disorder. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think the really interesting point too, is that, that I didn't really think about is, you know, you talked about the behaviors that they're, the external behaviors that they're also shaping because of that before the diagnosis, right? So, you know, whatever, whatever approaches they're they're taking to kind of deal with all this energy and impulsivity, uh, those things need to be uh, addressed as well by the parents and and especially at a young age, right? If you're saying kids are being diagnosed around the age of four or as early as four, uh, shaping their behaviors outside of the impulsivity is really important as well. If you have that medication at that point. Absolutely. And that's the time to do it. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. as we know, as psychologists, early intervention is always easier than later intervention, no matter what Absolutely. the presenting problem is. And so, yeah. so that's the, the pathway for boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I just described, uh, as I said, um, relies on data that uh, is primarily uh, from boys. If, if you, uh, and, and this includes our early work, if you recruit a large sample of children with ADHD um, and require them to score above a certain threshold, seven out of eight of your participants are going to be boys. And therefore, in all of your statistical analyses, boys are going to be pulling all the weight. Mm-hmm. And so you don't know what's going on uh, with the minority of girls in your sample. And you don't really have enough statistical power to test boy-girl differences uh, when there's that few girls. So, so, so what, what does it look like then, Ted, in girls? I mean, when you're talking about, you know, the diagnosis of 7 to 8% of the population, I imagine it's not based on, you know, 7 to 8% of males. It's it's both genders included, I imagine, right? Yeah, it's it's much more males than, uh, than females. Yeah. Um, and now is a good time for me to give a shout out to my long-term friend and collaborator, Steve Henshaw at UC Berkeley. Uh, Steve... Um, has conducted the largest trial to date of girls only with ADHD. It's called the BGAL study, the Berkeley Girls with ADHD Longitudinal Study. <laughs> and they were recruited when they were uh, in um, elementary and early middle school, if I recall correctly. And now they're um, in their late 20s and early 30s. And so they've been followed on s- repeatedly for several uh, uh, assessments. And given that they're all girls um, or all women now, uh, it gives us the opportunity to learn a little bit more about their trajectories. And, um, and Steve and I have written a number of papers together um, following findings from BGALS. And so let me explain, if I could, what he's found. Um, yeah, great, yeah. yeah, please do. So what's going on uh, with girls with ADHD is they're also showing um, some unfortunate adverse outcomes in adulthood, specifically in context of risk, but the outcomes are different than for boys. And so for girls who are diagnosed with ADHD, again, at that young age, and incur uh, adversity, so maltreatment, physical abuse, sexual abuse, they're at alarming rates of self, risk for alarming rates of self-injury and suicide attempts as they get older. So uh, 33% of girls specifically with the hyperactive impulsive subtype of ADHD 
um, engage uh, in some sort of suicidal behavior um, or suicide attempts by the time they're in middle uh, in their mid twenties. Uh, and 50% engage in some sort of non-suicidal self-injury, and uh, the the uh, prototypical um, behavior is is cutting. Right. And I think we're all familiar with what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and those numbers are so uh, inflated compared with the general population that I think it's incumbent on us to try to uh, intervene. We also know that those girls are experiencing all kinds of problems as they move into adulthood. Um, and that includes uh, depression, it includes substance use, it includes affiliating with antisocial males, uh, and it includes, um, as I said already, um, suicidal behaviors and non-suicidal self-injury. So it's not that they're at less risk uh, than boys with ADHD, it's that they're, they're at differential risk for, dip, for other outcomes. That is an astounding and staggering number. Like yes. truly. Wow. So, so again, if we're talking about general population, uh, what is the difference in, in um, diagnosis rates between boys and girls in terms of ADHD? Um, it depends on, on um, whether we're talking about um, community samples uh, or whether we're talking about clinical samples. So it depends on a few things. Mm -hmm. um, rate of diagnosis for girls are, of course, lower. And so um, when you get into uh, clinical samples, uh, that seven or eight to one um, ratio holds. If you get into community samples, um, you'll find more girls diagnosed with ADHD uh, and more boys for that matter. What you have to realize is that's where the overdiagnosis problem is going to occur in community samples. Right, right, right. And do you, do you know why, Ted? I mean, this is going to be a hard question probably, but uh, why boys are being diagnosed more? Do you think that that boys are more prone to having this, or is it just that they're being more prone to being diagnosed with it? No, I think they're more prone to having it. Um, and that is a really complicated question. Um, yeah. Steve Hinshaw and I edited a, a book, the Oxford Handbook of Externalizing Spectrum Disorders, where uh, a scholar, uh, Robert Emmy, wrote a great chapter on sex differences. Um, and it's complicated, uh, but <laughs> we have, um, there, there are um, neural response pattern differences. There are neurohormonal differences. Um, and of course, we can't ignore um, psychosocial um, influences on, that are different for boys and for girls. So, but, but it is a true difference. We're not talking about a phenomenon um, right. or a, um, some sort of bias in diagnosis. Cool. That's, that's great to know. Oh, yeah. So let's sort of head back towards this group of females, uh, young women now who have been diagnosed with ADHD. We've pulled out these really staggering numbers. Is there good news somewhere in all this? Is there something that we can cling to as sort of hope for betterment or, or um, you know, something, something that gives us some, some, some reason to believe that things aren't as bad as maybe they sound? Um, that's a that's a fabulous question, and that is the topic of a paper that we just published last year. Steve Hinshaw, me, and um, a colleague here at Ohio State, Jeff Bridge, uh, where we argue that we need to start with prevention. So, if you look at Centers for Disease Control numbers on suicide among women, um, we've seen over the past fifteen years um, incredibly high um, acceleration of, of incidents of suicide, uh, specifically among women. So. Um, 
this is one um, place where women have always enjoyed better mental health than men in terms of um, outcomes. So men suicide at much higher rates than women, but women are catching up, which of course is not good news. And if we look at suicide rates by age group, um, even though 10 to 14 year olds are still not at high risk for suicide, 10 to 14 year old girls over the past 15 years increased in suicide risk 300%. So um, suicides are, are occurring earlier uh, and they're rising uh, more in girls than they are in boys. So that means uh, if we can identify prospective vulnerability or if we can identify this risk beforehand, then it's incumbent on us to formulate some kind of prevention program. Um, and that paper that we um, that I was just talking about um, lays out, um, here's how that um, can and should be done. We know what um, the mechanisms are, right? We know that these girls who, but no, through no fault of their own, are born um, hyper, very hyperactive. Um, when they incur physical and sexual abuse, um, are vulnerable to these long-term suicidal and non-suicidal self-injury outcomes. And so if we can intervene with mechanisms, which is a you know, basic um, objective of psychopathology research and, and treatment research, if we can intervene with mechanisms, if we can prevent that um, abuse, if we can uh, apply interventions that are known to be effective uh, at an earlier age, then hopefully we can alter these trajectories. Um, one thing that I haven't mentioned is that we've done some neuroimaging research with girls who engage in non-suicidal self-injury. Um, and what we see is um, smaller brain volumes in regions that are implicated in emotion regulation or the ability to dampen negative emotional states. Um, and so and that includes fear, that includes anger, that includes uh, sadness. Um, we have to have some capacity to dampen those, to effectively uh, engage in the environment and deal with disappointment and um, all of those things. And um, what we find, again, in, in girls who are between 13 and 18, um, is smaller brain volumes uh, in the a, a couple of regions. I can list them if, you, if you'd like me to. <laughs> Uh, brain regions that are important for emotion regulation. But what we don't see uh, is the extent of brain regions affected among older women who engage in those same behaviors. That suggests or might suggest a level of neuroplasticity, right? Maybe there's some opportunity to prevent uh, the really uh, extensive structural brain differences that develop later on through preventive intervention. It's an open question, but we know that those prefrontal brain regions that help us regulate our behavior are developing all the way into the mid twenties and they're, they're very responsive to environmental input. So there's hope. Yeah, that's, I, I, I find that really interesting. I've always been fascinated by neuroplasticity. And so it's interesting to know that there's sort of this critical period for these young women um, when for one reason or another, they don't have the same uh, neural capacities as as sort of neurotypicals. And in some ways, it's about getting them through that stage and, you know, designing interventions that can be used to kind of um, grow those areas, of... grow those areas and, and reduce the risk for those women. That's really interesting. Um, yes, that, that's what we hope. Right. Yeah, that's what we hope. Of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of what kind of interventions are we talking about here? Like what's something that that 
you know, you'd recommend not, not to, you know, a clinical population necessarily, but if, you know, where do, what kind of interventions would you, would what you areas are we focusing on? I guess, yeah, interventions. Yeah. Well, what we recommend, uh, first of course, is that, uh, if you discover, um, someone regardless of who they are as being physically or sexually abused that has to stop first right yeah. mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, that's worth uh worth saying right at the outset um there are a number of other recommendations that we make um in this paper as well and those come about if you understand what the mechanisms are so we know what some of the family mecha- mechanisms are we know what goes on in families where um children are maltreated um we know uh how to prevent those. There are some prevention programs include, including what's called parent-child interaction therapy, including the Incredible Years program, which is developed at the University of Washington, that um, are very effective in stopping the patterns of um, interaction and maltreatment that are occurring in these families. And so that's the very first thing. We have to halt ongoing maltreatment. It's a top intervention priority. Uh, And then um, we need to target um, emotion dysregulation. And uh, this is an important point because um, these are girls who are impulsive. That's a highly heritable trait. Again, they get there through no fault of their own. They just get the uh, genetic dice are rolled uh, from their parents and they inherit this highly heritable trait. And what we argue is that um, focusing on that for intervention is um, not likely to yield uh, much in terms of effects because it's so highly heritable and resistant to change. Um, in contrast, uh, self-regulation um, can be socialized uh, and can be taught. And there are effective interventions for that, including dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, there have been some um, adjustments for younger people um, like uh, children who are in, in their preteens. And so emotion dysregulation needs to be targeted. We need to teach uh, these young girls, um, what to do uh, when they feel sad, when they feel angry, when they feel um, anxious and depressed. Um, and um, it, it's also important um, that we address peer relationships. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners already know that um, online uh, reinforcement of self-injurious behavior is an enormous problem um, right now. And so there are chat rooms, um, I'm not uh, at my age up to date on uh, all the uh, options available, um, but there are places where self-injuring uh, adolescent girls in particular frequent online uh, in which they teach each other to, to be better at um, self-injury, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so that needs to be intervened with. We have to be careful not to treat them together because we see what, what are called iatrogenic effects of treatment. So where behavior gets worse instead of better, despite all the best intentions. Um, and so we have to uh, be very careful about um, treating these girls together so they don't teach each other um, the tricks of the trade, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes um, and, um, and parent uh, training, uh, for lack of a better term, is an integral part uh, of treatment. We have to teach parents to be more skillful, skillful parents. And um, it's, it's very easy to get angry with parents when you uh, are treating parents who are maltreating uh, their children. Uh, What we have to remember is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? So those parents who are parenting these children um, are almost certainly impulsive, given how highly heritable impulsivity is, and many of them come from contexts of maltreatment. And so um, it's important not to um, 
blame the victim in that in that case and to welcome them into treatment as well. Right. So those are some some um, some highlights, if you will. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah, interesting. It almost sounds to me like uh, the approach that you're kind of advocating for here is is not to uh, identify and treat exclusively the individual who's been diagnosed or is expressing these traits and characteristics, but in fact, to take more of a holistic approach and, and to try and change that psychosocial dynamic that surrounds that individual. Is that a fair encapsulation of kind of what you're getting at? Oh, it's fair. And it's a fabulous point that in, in that can be extended to virtually any um, form of psychopathology or mental disorder. Sure. That, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just focusing on the individual will only pay a certain amount of dividends. We're all embedded in broader cultural contexts and familial contexts and um, and so, yeah, very good point. Mm-hmm. Not to uh, bring up uh, the current pandemic in every conversation we ever have, but uh, I'm curious with this population, how do you think this might be affecting it? And, you know, talking about how the family is so important in this and, you know, the parents and the, and the child are so important in this interaction when it comes to, you know, uh, improving outcomes. How does being, you know, in these self-isolation situations, I don't know if you can ha- talk, speak to this at all, but um, do you yeah. think that this might be, there might be some sort of uh, suggestions for families that might be dealing with children with ADHD, how to deal with this kind of situation where you're stuck at home and you and you can't kind of have these kind of interactions with other, other individuals? Um, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good question. And one that I'm reluctant to speculate about because I don't know of any data. But what comes to mind, and, and as long as it's labeled as speculation, that's fine. What comes Absolutely. to mind mm-hmm. is um, there are pluses and minuses probably, right? So yeah. um, if, you're, if you're at home with your kids 24-7 and you're, uh, you have uh, a child with ADHD, that's going to be difficult for all. Um, so, uh, so, so there is that. On the other hand, uh, external influences are gone. Um, you know, to the extent that they're not spending all of their time online and they're, um, you're actually following directions and not letting your children out to play with other children or to um, socialize with other children. Mm-hmm. So that can be an, an advantage given the strong influence of deviant peers for both boys and girls uh, who are, you know, um, yeah, pre-adolescence uh, through uh, adulthood. So... True. That's actually a really um, good point. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're you're no longer able to have that kind of external pressure if you do have deviant peers, and it's you could be benefiting greatly from not being around them for you know a month or two. Right. So um, it may be actually easier to be consistent in some ways, um, although um, you probably are going to get on one another's nerves. Um, yes. Yeah. I guess that's reliant yeah. on the uh, the home environment being a positive one, and if we're talking about you know. Uh, external forces as being sort of the locus of some of these behaviors that we want to curtail, then, you know, then it could be I mean, home is probably sure. a good thing. Whereas if there's things going on in the home life that are, are kind of being uh, put out into the world during <laughs> those external socializing events, then that might not be a good spot for them to be in. Yeah. No, I, right. I, I, we also have to consider that um, in terms of boys on a delinquent trajectory, girls, on a self-injurious trajectory, that the home life is probably very compromised for some of them. Well, we know it is. It's not probably. It's, it's it is. Certainly. Um, and if you think about what those contexts of risk likely look like, um, so um, parental drug use, mm-hmm. um, more opportunities for maltreatment, 
Uh, if the child's home all the time instead of at school, you can imagine it going very badly as well. Um, I assume that some people will be writing about this uh, mm -hmm. in the literature uh, in upcoming months and years. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, sorry to take you off off track on that. I'm just obviously it's in the back of everybody's head, so I thought it was a question yeah. that I, I was curious about because because of you know just the tension that is within every home right now anyway <laughs> uh, because you're not used to being around your family 24 seven all the time um, and, right. and it's different for every popular uh, for your different populations right and this population is a specific one that uh, the home life is very important with these outcomes as we've been talking about. Right. And, and I mean, another issue that we haven't talked about yet, um, and, it, and it's extremely important um, here in the United States, at least, is the ever increasing disparity in wealth um, between the haves and the have nots. And so, um, so many more people uh, are in situations um, of extreme poverty. Um, over the past 40 years, we've seen um, further and further increases. And the only way um, that the poverty numbers look good as good at all is by changing them. Um, if that makes sense, if, if too many people qualify for impoverished, uh, for an impoverished state, you just uh, change the threshold, which is what has happened here in the United States. But there are so many people with so few resources, uh, that some of the problems that we're talking about with development of delinquency, um, with engagement with deviant peers, uh, with parents having to work two jobs and not being at home um, to supervise their children, even if they are competent caregivers, that these problems are embedded in such broad sociocultural contexts that coming up with an effective intervention, um, while important, mm -hmm. um, will do very little unless somehow we can you know, mount the resources to get those interventions to children who need them. Yeah. To make it more accessible for everybody, especially the ones that can't afford those kind of interventions or the time to, to partake in them. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. So it's the, if you think of the prototypical boy with ADHD who does well, um, he lives with, uh, in, in a family where you've got competent caregiving. Mm -hmm. Um, he goes to maybe a private school where, um, his teachers are very competent from a behavioral standpoint as well. Um, to the extent that he gets medication, it's consistent, uh, monitored carefully. Um, he gets good coaching on his transition from high school to college. All of the things that aren't present uh, in contexts of, of poverty. Mm -hmm. So I can't emphasize that enough when I, when I talk about the differential trajectories for someone with ADHD. Um, ADHD is not a disorder that needs to stop someone from uh, being successful in life. But um, if someone is to be successful in life, um, they need um, some advantages that poor people don't generally have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of research, I think um, there's the idea of resiliency or grit. Uh, I'm curious as to how that might intersect with this kind of population, if you know of any research or any kind of anyone looking into that kind of area. Yeah, but the, the way that we think about this, and I've sort of alluded to this, is that um, it's really important to teach strong emotion regulation capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and if you read the literature on emotion regulation, or, you know, that, again, that ability to dampen negative emotions and yeah. override them in the service of goals, um, that, that the brain regions that are implicated in doing that are the same brain regions that are implicated in executive function. 
um, our ability to plan, um, our ability to um, um, suppress immediate needs for long-term goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and grit falls right in there, right? Um, grit is a popular psychology term, but it mm-hmm. really sort of encapsulates some of those um, skills that are under control of the prefrontal cortex um, that are going to be important in overcoming um, impulsive behavior. Right. Yeah. So they're kind of kind of working hand in hand. Like it's you're probably getting a little bit of both whenever you're working on these, you know, uh, emotion emotion control. Right. And, and something that I haven't said is that that um, impulsive emotions, so wanting, seeking, enthusiasm, those emotions are generated by really old brain regions that are deep in our uh, our brains. Um, those brain regions are unchanged across species. So if you look deep in our brains at the structures that are responsible for um, for those emotions, um, they change very little from rodents to to primates, including humans. Uh, what's different about us is we have this really elaborated cortex, especially frontal cortex, that can be used to effectively downregulate those really old brain regions that are responsible for emotions. And that's that's the key with emotion regulation. It's we need that frontal cortex development and we need to be able to enlist our frontal cortices um, when we need to. Uh, to um, to facilitate adaptive adaptive behavior and to right. override impulses. The same is true for people who um, who are anxious by nature. They need to be able to override a different set of emotions in order to uh, be productive in the world. So, mm-hmm. absolutely, that's really interesting. Um, I think right now if there's if there's nothing else specific that you want to talk about ted i was wondering if you want to talk about some maybe maybe some myths or misconceptions if you have any about this area oh interesting a a very common misconception still is that adhd goes away in adulthood right um and nothing could be further from the truth so i started to talk about uh, our research in sweden and i've collaborated with um a um, researcher, uh, Mariette Boss, at the Swedish House of Finance, and with uh, someone here at our official Fisher School of Business. And um, we obtained data from the entire Swedish population, 11.55 million people. And that's the sample that I was talking about in terms of the 1.5% rate of ADHD. Uh, And we evaluated two things. One, their financial behaviors and outcomes. So for example, um, debt repayment, um, debt, um, requests for credit, credit denials, um, and assorted other financial uh, metrics. And we also evaluated uh, suicide outcomes, something that you can do when you have a population study that large. And we found higher rates of suicide among those who were diagnosed with ADHD, both men and women, and this is nothing new. Um, several other studies have found that, uh, including population studies. No one had, had, before us, though, had evaluated um, the conjoint effects of financial outcomes um, and ADHD on suicide. Um, and so we also found that those with ADHD um, had uh, poor financial outcomes. They were in more debt. They couldn't get credit even though they tried to get credit. They, had, they were bouncing from job to job. Nothing new about that. Um, the interesting thing about this study, which is which will be published soon, 
uh, is that in the three years prior to suicide for those with ADHD, their financial um, profile, if you will, their financial situation got progressively worse. Right. Yeah. Um, so more debt, um, more problems with debt repayment. Um, and that did not happen to others in the population who suicided. Uh, and so if we, so there was an interaction effect, if you will, between uh, ADHD diagnosis and um, worsening financial situation in predicting suicide. So um, that brings us back to, um, to both ADHD um, mm -hmm. and, and, and suicide as we talked about today. So, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, I think that's a really good point is that there that is a huge misconception or a myth that, that ADHD is for just for children that are hyperactive and that they'll grow out of it. Uh, I've definitely seen that uh, sentiment, at least whenever it comes to ADHD, is everybody thinking is it's, it's only whenever kids are in school and once they're out of school, it just magically disappears. And, and clearly that's not the case. Right. So we, we have some uh, really great long-term outcome data from the multimodal treatment of ADHD study and several others uh, that show uh, when children are diagnosed with ADHD, yes, the behaviors change in adulthood but they have trouble keeping a job. Um, they earn um, hundreds of thousands of dollars less over the course of their lives than people without ADHD. They have trouble staying married. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a lifelong condition. Absolutely. I think it's a big part of it. It's probably just that people like to think of ADHD as something that happens in the school setting because that's the easiest way to, to, to identify it probably, right? Is that, you know, they're not doing their work and they're not paying attention in class and their teachers are annoyed. Uh, but yeah, sure. this... This has a lot of impact. It can have impacts on every aspect of your life or every aspect of uh, an individual's life. And, and that's what people don't really tend to think about uh, when it comes to ADHD, which I think is a great point. I'm, I'm glad that you came on to talk about it because it's, uh, it's really enlightened me for uh, the work that's being done in ADHD and adults. Right. Yeah. And there, there is a good deal um, of work being done now. So and, and that's a good thing to see. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I do, uh, I do appreciate as well the, the focus on gender differences as well, because I think we often tend to just assume it works for the same way for everybody. And it's clear that there's very unique differences uh, between males and females when it comes to ADHD. So, so one of the things that I've been kind of interested about is, you know, we've talked about differences between uh, males and females um, in terms of prevalence rates and in terms of uh, self-injurious behaviors and deviance and all that kind of thing, all that kind of stuff. I guess what I'm curious about now is, do we need to think about interventions differently? Or, or, or can we kind of apply the same techniques to both groups of individuals, even though the outcomes are maybe different? That's a great question, um, and not one that I've, I'm often asked. Uh, but um, what we're proposing is that if you catch um, the process early, uh, so if we're talking about catching um, high-risk families, let's say anywhere between age four, maybe to um, pre-adolescence, that the mechanisms um, that pull, if you will, impulsive uh, boys and girls along um, to more difficult or intractable, intractable behaviors are the same. It's family dysfunction, it's abuse, it's um, coercion, it's... Um, um, it's neglect. Uh, it's the same set of issues. And we know what to do with those. We have effective interventions. And the point that I made earlier, I, I can't reiterate enough, uh, it's getting those interventions um, to the people who need them. Um, what has evolved over the past couple of decades um, 
is a situation with our in our healthcare system, of course, where um, to the extent that healthcare is available to people in need, uh, it boils down to a 10 minute um, appointment with a primary care provider. And I have nothing against primary care providers, of course, but how is uh, that person to understand uh, the issues that are going on in a family, what a family's needs are? Um, how are we referring children in need uh, to the appropriate services? Uh, if uh, protect child protective services, or I'm not sure what you call them in Canada, if they get involved, do they have the resources to implement an effective intervention? The answer to these questions is, um, is it has to give us pause that resources are required. Uh, and, and right now in the United States, we're not investing those resources. Mm -hmm. We know what to do. Um, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Which is almost more frustrating, I would imagine, to be able to look at this group of individuals who you've studied extensively and be able to say, hey, we know what we can do to help these people. We can we can help them achieve their goals and, and you know, um, kind of overcome all the neurological deficits that they've got, but we're just willingly not doing it. <laughs> like, I imagine that would be really frustrating. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got people like Steve Hinshaw, Bill Pelham, Brooke Molina, um, who have been doing all the appropriate work for and, and I'm sure I've left people out, but all the appropriate work for the past uh, several decades, um, showing us how to intervene with these children. Um, and service delivery is a major impediment. And it's not only ADHD that that's the case for. Um, no, of naming a mental health issue, and that's the situation, at least Absolutely. in the United States. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. Okay. With that, we'll call it the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed as much as we have. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. It's been quite an eye-opening uh, and educational experience for me. This is an area that I knew very little about, and so I feel uh, quite grateful and thankful that I now uh, have got to hear it directly from you. So thank you so much. Thank you for uh, having me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we've got a couple minutes here. Is there anybody that you'd like to say hi to? Well, the floor is yours. <laughs> Oh, who might be listening to this podcast? I, I don't know. <laughs> Tell your lab to listen to it. Get Shout out it. to David Konsky at, uh, at Up With You. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to David. We'll make sure he knows that you're really, really keen on uh, visiting us. And uh, when you're in town, we'll we'll make sure to get you out and we'll, we'll show you around and, and show you all the beautiful sights of the city. Uh, I look forward to it. And I wish everyone uh, safety in this time. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's uh, quite a unique and, and fascinating world we've got ourselves in right now. So uh, everyone stay safe. Um, all right. Well, with that, we'll, we'll say thanks once again, Ted. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find others on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you might find a podcast. Uh, and again, obviously, if you've enjoyed, leave us a comment, leave us a review, uh, leave us a couple stars, a like, whatever that might be. Not only is it good for Drake and I to get a little uh, <laughs> a little reinforcement, but it's it's good to let others know that you've enjoyed and that they should give it a listen as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find, as, as I said, as much information about this episode as you'd like on brainbuzzpodcast.com, where we'll have references. We'll also have contact information for Ted. In case there's a question that you thought, damn it, Kyle, you should have asked that. It would have been such a good question. You can go straight to the source um, and reach him uh, at brainbuzzpodcast.com. So uh, with that, we'll say cheers. Cheers. Cheers.